Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament, walking through the Old Testament narrative portions of Scripture. We are here for week 31, for the week of July 30th through August 5th. Um, we are right smack dab in the middle of First Samuel, um, walking with David, um, the type of Christ <clears throat> as he is uh, facing persecution, tribulation, and trials. And so this is a, an exciting portion of God's word where we also see Jesus Christ um, highly lifted up, um, typified and pointed to uh, by David in his life and person. So thank you for being with us. Um, I hope you're, you're doing well this week. And uh, let's dive in and see what the Lord has uh, for us in the Word this week. So we are in week 31, uh, 1 Samuel 19 through 26, Psalms 150 through Psalm 4. So David has killed Goliath. David has become friends with Jonathan. David has made enemies with Saul. And David has actually married Saul's daughter. Well, things go pretty badly in this family struggle. You could imagine the, the difficult family dinners that must have happened whenever uh, David was around now as the son-in-law of Saul. Um, and uh, we see what happens here in 1 Samuel 19. Saul tries to kill David. Um, he throws a spear and uh, wants to have David pinned against the wall, wants to finish him off and get rid of him. So we see how how deeply Saul has fallen in his disobedience to God, his rebellion against God's word and against God's promise, that now he's seeking to commit murder and trying to destroy the anointed one, the small C Christ of God. So first of all, let's look here, 1 Samuel 19, um, and this is an article called Maintaining Christian Unity in a Polarized Time. It's by Christopher Hutchinson, and it's uh, not strictly speaking about this passage of Scripture, about how David responds to, to Saul and all of that, but it does tie into that. So um, hopefully it'll help us uh, to think about how these things in David's life, how he faces persecution, how he responds to opposition, um, can help us as we likewise try to maintain unity in our world where it's so easy, isn't it, uh, to choose sides and uh, to be filled with revenge or hatred or um, enmity, hostility against even fellow believers. So um, Christopher Hutchinson right here writes this. When I was still in seminary, I had the opportunity to preach in an old congregational church near Boston founded in the year 1642. It had a sanctuary that could seat 1,500 and a pulpit so high that its ascent required two sets of stairs. They even broadcast the service on television, all heady stuff for a seminarian. Or so I thought. The morning I preached, there were approximately 30 people in the congregation, and they all sat as far apart from one another as possible in that vast sanctuary. I think about that picture as I look at the situation many congregations face today. We live in a highly polarized time, fueled by political differences and competing media environments. Even within congregations, different members are receiving their information from very, from very different sources. We can't even agree on what is true. And in this pandemic environment in which we cannot see each other as often as we used to, it is almost like we are sitting in the same sanctuary, but apart, each in our own world. 
In this time, each of us must make an extra effort to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But here is a point that many miss. Disagreement among Christians will inevitably arise, and that is not always a bad thing. In fact, it can be very good. Otherwise, we would not be called to sharpen one another. Biblical truth must prevail over preference and tradition. When we are shown to be wrong by our fellow brothers and sisters, we have a wonderful opportunity to grow in faith and humility and thus in unity. I cannot tell you how many times I have been given that opportunity by losing a vote or argument, blessed beyond measure. But as we think about our differences, especially in our political opinions, we must remember what Paul says in Romans 14. Many of the choices we make are matters of Christian freedom in which brothers may differ. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul tells us that there is something more important than an outward conformity on secondary matters. Following one's conscience while maintaining unity with brothers who make different choices I am no engineer, but I understand that some of the safest suspension bridges are those with a degree of flexibility built into them in order to withstand earthquakes. It makes for some frightening online videos of bridges swaying in the wind, but without the flexibility, the whole bridge would collapse if one part came under strain. Is it possible that we also need some flexibility as we approach matters of conscience? Today, some Christians are so inflexible in all of their thinking that if one small beam or joint is removed, their whole system collapses. By contrast, mature believers have a degree of flexibility built in so that if some small detail of their thinking is challenged, they may sway a bit on that or even change their mind while yet still holding to the fundamentals of the faith that keeps the bridge intact. Wisdom enables us to make distinctions so that our main beams and towers remain intact and will not budge. We hold to the essentials of the gospel no matter what. However, we might be persuaded to change our minds on less critical matters. We are not undone if the earth shakes and if we find ourselves swaying a bit. We do not panic as long as uh, we do not panic as long the bri- as the bridge itself remains built on Christ and his gospel. Wisdom enables us to major on the majors, keeping the main thing the main thing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We must humbly confess that the Bible is not always as clear on some matters as we might wish. So what do we do? It's really very simple. Keep studying and learning and in humility, agree to disagree. We are all wrong about some parts of our life and doctrine. We just don't know what they are yet. In the meantime, we stand on Christ and his perfections. Humility must stand right at the center of our lives if we are to have any success. We must all submit to one another in our different roles. Very often, a doctrinal fight or political disagreement is really just a smokescreen for something else that is going on, some power struggle between leaders, each believing that they are standing on principle. Gene Edwards illustrates this principle well in his unique book about church conflict entitled A Tale of Three Kings, A Study in Brokenness. The three kings in the book are Saul, David, and Absalom whom Edwards uses as a parable to study the dysfunction that leads to power struggles in many churches. The book is a reflection on David's response to the threats that both Saul and Absalom posed to his leadership. One passage is particularly poignant based on the episode in 1 Samuel 19, in which King Saul hurls his spear at David, trying to kill him. David had a question. What do you do when someone throws a spear at you? Does it not seem odd to you that David did not know the answer to this question? 
After all, everyone else in the world knows what to do when a spear is thrown at them. Why, you pick up the spear and throw it right back. When someone throws a spear at you, David, just wrench it right out of the wall and throw it back. Absolutely everyone else does. You can be sure. And in doing this small feat of returning thrown spears, you will prove many things. You are courageous. You stand for the right. You boldly stand against the wrong. You are tough and can't be pushed around. You will not stand for injustice or unfair treatment. You are the defender of the faith, keeper of the flame, detector of all heresy. You will not be wronged. All of these attributes then combine to prove that you are also, obviously, a candidate for kingship. Yes, perhaps you are the Lord's anointed, after the order of King Saul. So, we always have a choice when we face conflict in the church. Whatever the issue involved, we can pick up the spear and hurl it back, hoping to win the battle and keep our position, even in the cause of truth and justice. Or, we can put church unity at the very top of our list, just under the gospel itself. And if we do that, we may lose the battle, it is true. We may even lose our church and have to move on. But then again, it was never ours to begin with. And we will not become a King Saul. We will lose the earthly battle, but sow a harvest of righteousness. And no matter whether we think a doctrinal issue is worth fighting over or not, we must always lead with humility. Fight for the gospel with humility. Argue for other important truths with humility. Acquiesce in minor matters with humility and always be prepared to be corrected by some, by anyone who argues God's truth accurately, even as David submitted to Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 in a beautiful display of the powerful submitting to the weaker simply because she was right. That is the kind of wisdom from above, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I am convinced that if you pursue humility and love towards your opponents, doing your best to be at peace with all men, you will experience unity with them in Christ. It may be one-sided for a while, and perhaps for a long while, but you will do right by Christ and his body. You will do your part to grow the church into the unity of the faith and the stature of the fullness of Christ. You will be part of creating a harvest of righteousness sown in peace as one who, by God's grace, makes peace. I think that's a very helpful article. Um, as we think about what David is doing here in all of these chapters here, right? He does not respond in kind to Saul's attacks and threats consistently throughout, right? He says, it's not my job to judge the Lord's anointed. He is, um, Saul has been put here by the Lord and the Lord will remove him from the scene. It's not going, and in his good time and in his good way, it is not my job to do that. So Saul, or David, excuse me, consistently, while he imperfectly, he is imperfect in this, obviously, as we see by, um, remember with, with, as we're going to talk about next with Abigail's husband, Nabal, um, he wants to go and take out Nabal and all of his, all of his men. But, um, uh, but David, uh, is, is held back by God, but also in many ways consistently shows a patience, um, a humility that is to be applauded. Imperfect, of course, um, but we can learn a lot from the way David responded to the persecution of others around him. He did not give up on the truth, um, but he pursued it in humility. And there's a lesson for me and for you, I think, um, as we as we try to contend for the faith, as we try to contend for it in a world that 
does not like us in many ways, is becoming more hostile to us as we live in a world that is going to begin throwing more and more spears at us. The temptation for us as individual believers and as church members and as in our families and as churches in general is going to be, we're going to want to throw those spears right back at them. But that's not what we can do, right? We have to um, walk in humility, hold steadfastly to the truth of Jesus Christ, and um, in humility, love and serve each other, and in humility, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, in, in some ways, I think there's also a, a sense in which um, we see David here. He takes God seriously, and he takes the truth of the Lord seriously, the gospel, but he doesn't take himself too seriously. And that's a helpful thing for me. I don't know about you, but sometimes whenever I take myself too seriously, as if I am so important, as if I am um, so holy or so necessary, um, I get out of place. And I should rather take God seriously, take his word seriously, and not take myself so seriously. Um, because we are, we are nothing apart from him. But we do want to take his truth seriously and defend it with humility. Okay, so David here is, is uh, running away from Saul. We see he goes to the priest. Saul continues to go down and down, right? Remember, Saul wouldn't kill all of the, uh, the Amalekites um, in 1 Samuel 15, right? He disobeys the Lord um, and keeps the sheep and the king alive. But he has no problem killing the priests of the Lord in 1 Samuel 22, right? He has no problem doing that, which shows just how demented sin makes us. Um, David is pursued by Saul. He spares Saul's life. And then we read about an interesting story in 1 Samuel 25, right after the death of Samuel. Um, David here, he's been guarding um, uh, some uh, sheep and some men uh, for a rich man named Nabal, who uh, is there. He's got a wife named Abigail. Um, she's a good woman, a holy woman, a wise woman. And uh, we see what happens um, whenever Nabal um, refuses to uh, uh, pay back and treat kindly David and his men. Uh, David's saying, okay, well, strap on your swords, gentlemen. We're going to get revenge. Um, and we see what Abigail does. She comes in humility to approach David, and she's used by God to keep David from committing greater sin. So this is about um, Abigail and this whole instance. This is a rose. This article is called A Rose Among Thorns, and it's by Bradley Gray. He writes this, perhaps you're familiar with the expression a rose between two thorns or a rose among thorns. It's a polite way of pointing out how someone who possesses either beauty or virtue or both is regrettably caught between two people who have neither. And you could very well say a rose among thorns is the best way to condense the sprawling narrative of 1 Samuel 25. This chapter relays a truly riveting story. One of the key ingredients that makes it so intriguing is the high regard it gives to the female character of Abigail, who is, to a large degree, the story's central figure. Flanking her, in terms of storytelling, are the characters of Nabal and David. You know David. He's the soon-to-be king of Israel, who finds himself on the run from the incumbent King Saul. This particular narrative occurs during the season in which David was a fugitive of his own throne. Nabal is Abigail's husband, and he is not at all an upstanding fella. Instead, Nabal is described as a vicious and materialistic man, 
We learn more about his property before we learn anything about his person, which speaks volumes about his character. Nabal's identity is seemingly wrapped up in his stuff and in his powerful position in society. And, as we'll soon learn, that's all he really cares about. Compare that introduction with Abigail's. The woman was discerning and beautiful. While the husband is obstinate and intense, the wife is insightful and understanding. While Nabal is introduced by what he had, Abigail is introduced for who she was, discerning and beautiful. She, indeed, as Edward Bridges writes, is set up to be the hero of the story and the master of the situation. Through the direct actions of Abigail, we are shown one of the most powerful truths in all of Scripture. With Saul still on the hunt and Samuel now deceased, David and his men trek further south, traversing the desert of Paran near the Sinai Peninsula, which happens to be where the vile businessman Nabal runs his shepherding operation. David learns that it was time for sheep shearing, so he dispatches ten of his men to deliver a message to Nabal, requesting provisions to be rationed to him and his men. Sheep shearing, in many parts of Judea, had become a spring festival of sorts, accompanied by feasting, drinking, and partying. David's inquiry, then, is merely for Nabal to supply his men with food and drink out of his own abundance. What he's asking for isn't out of turn either, since, as his message suggests, they had taken it upon themselves to guard Nabal's shepherds against unwanted intruders, allowing his pastoral enterprise to carry on without any infringement or interruption. David's plea is for common decency to be shown to him and his men in return for safeguarding Nabal's business ventures. And this is when we get the first true glimpse at how nasty Nabal could be. When David's young men came, they said, to all, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Nabal's response is the epitome of disrespect. Karl Barth describes it as the speech of an unusually self-opinionated and standoffish and intolerably priggish bourgeois. Not only does he outright deny David's request, Nabal proceeds to insult him and his men in the process. He slanders his pedigree, implying that David could very well be just another runaway slave causing a ruckus in the region. This, of course, is an absurd notion, since the whole of Israel was well aware that King Saul was in hot pursuit of David, son of Jesse. Nabal's words ooze with vileness and vindictiveness, with a willful ignorance that's downstream of a bloated self-concern. All this does is get David riled up. As soon as he hears the report of Nabal's reply, he readies himself and his men for war. It is telling that David's first impulse, when his honor is impugned, is to retaliate. There's no mistaking what those 400 men armed to the gills were going to do. It was going to be a massacre. David was intent on settling this score how he saw fit. While all that brouhaha was going on, one of Nabal's servants ducks out of the room and brings Abigail up to speed. We're not told what inspired him to do so, but perhaps he knew that this situation was desperate for a more reasoned, rational response. Regardless, he tells her everything, how David had made a simple request and how Nabal had responded like a raving lunatic for no apparent reason. David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them, reports the aide. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. 
This servant lays out all the facts and then suggests that Abigail consider a better course of action since her husband is a worthless, no-good louse. Interestingly enough, Abigail doesn't disagree with that assessment of her husband's character. In fact, later on, she'll employ the exact same language. But after learning what's been going on and knowing that her husband has gotten himself into another sticky situation, she quickly springs into action, making arrangements for more than enough food to be delivered to David's encampment. While Abigail acted miserly, or excuse me, while Nabal acted miserly, Abigail went above and beyond. She went out of her way, down to where David was, to shed some much-needed wisdom into an otherwise foolish episode. And this is when we get to the heart of the story. When Abigail is greeted by David and his men, she proceeds to deliver one of the most remarkable and resonant speeches ever recorded. Abigail's words are filled to the brim with pure grace. She makes no excuses for her husband's actions. In fact, she uses a clever play on words to admit that Nabal has lived up to his name. The name Nabal literally means fool. Abigail, in effect, says to David that Nabal has Nabaled this whole thing by refusing to attend to the needs of his men, stoking retaliation. Nabal is his name and folly is his game, we might render her words. And even though she was unaware of it, Abigail assumes her husband's foolish guilt as her own. Blame me, she says, going so far as to plead for David to forgive her for this offensive situation. She insists that the fault be given to her for the whole debacle. But on top of that, Abigail proceeds to remind David who he was. Whatever she knew, she knew that David was anointed by Samuel and therefore by God, which meant that his life was bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord. She was in the presence of the Lord's anointed. Although David knew that, his impulse to retaliate says otherwise. The message of Abigail evidences uncanny wisdom and trust in the providence of God. She ascribes the fact that she's talking to David at that moment, not to fate, but to the Lord's divine ordination, reminding the future king of Israel that he need not brandish the sword of his own justice. Rather, he ought to trust in the provision and promise of God's sovereign timing. These were, perhaps, the least likely words David expected from the wife of Nabal. As such, they resonate with David, so much so that he likewise sees her chance encounter as a gift of God's providence. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, he declares, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Abigail was the actor, but God was the playwright. She wasn't there by happenstance. It was the Lord who sent her to intervene, to prevent the man after his own heart from acting like a fool. David was just as much at risk for acting like a Nabal as Nabal. David's hand was on the hilt of his sword. He was ready to retaliate. God, however, interrupts his revenge tour by sending Abigail at just the right time. After David relents, Abigail returns home only to find her husband reveling in the decadence befitting a king. He's partying and carousing, completely oblivious to the fact that he owes his head to the quick-wittedness of his wise wife. When she finally tells a hungover Nabal what she did to save his neck the next morning, his reaction says it all. When the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. What's the takeaway of this story? 
In one sense, we can understand these events through the eyes of David. It's no accident that the story of almost retaliation is sandwiched between two accounts of sheer mercy. In chapters 24 and 26, though given the prime opportunity to execute revenge on his, own, on his sworn enemy, King Saul, David spares him, making his course of action throughout chapter 25 so obviously reckless. The promised king of Israel is then sufficiently humanized and humiliated, shown to be susceptible to all the faults and failures and foibles of every other sinner. What's more, though, this story is also a beautiful reminder of how God's grace sometimes looks like restraint. There are times when the Lord mercifully prevents us from doing something we're intent on doing, and this is grace too. But in a truer sense, since this narrative hinges on the words and actions of Abigail, she deserves the utmost attention. Abigail's wisdom and grace are a marvel to behold, like a rose among thorns, you might say. She responds to her husband's foolish railing and to David's foolish haste with a word of substitution. She takes her husband's guilt as her own, securing his pardon by putting her own life on the line in order to make things right, in order to bring about reconciliation. In this story, wrath, justified though it may be, is disarmed by a word of intervening grace that comes at just the right time, which is exactly how it works in the gospel too. For while we were still weak, Paul says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. When the right time came, he continues elsewhere, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. The good news is an announcement that comes at the exact right time. It's the glad tidings of God's gracious intervention for a world full of good-for-nothing sinners and balls like you and me through the incarnation of his son who takes all our foolish guilt and sin as his own. Jesus is the true and better Abigail who comes into a realm full of foolish, selfish sinners and assumes the blame for something he did not do. God in Christ says, in effect, the same thing that Abigail says, blame me, the fault is mine. And even though he knew no sin, he willingly becomes sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Grace comes for grace comes for every foolish, self-absorbed sinner, for every Nabal, and announces that there is one who has already taken it upon himself to shoulder all of our wrongdoing, paying the price for it through the sacrifice of himself. This is what the Christ of God has done for you. He pleads your case before the Father and buys your forgiveness with his own blood. Jesus, then, is the ultimate rose among thorns, the rose of Sharon, that blooms in this world of thorns and thistles in order to demonstrate God's redemptive resolve. Well, I think that's a really good way to end uh, this week's readings, um, focusing on God's grace at work in keeping and preserving David but ultimately, that all of that, right, it, it's, it's, we see the hand of Jesus active even in these pages of Scripture, don't we? Um, at the right time, working through all sorts of people. And in your life, too, you can see all sorts of people that Jesus is using, the Holy Spirit is using, the Father is using, to restrain us from sins we might otherwise have committed, to encourage us, to empower us. He uses people. He uses all these things in our lives in providence to uphold us and to keep us going in this Christian walk. Well, thank you for listening to this. Next week, we are going to be in week 32, 1 Samuel 27 through 2 Samuel 5. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this. Take care and God bless. <laughs>